Hey guys, you are listening to Absurdity. I am Ryan Becker, the host of this podcast where we start with the assumption that everything is absurd, from faith to social justice issues to science, all of it. Everything is absurd. And so we are going to embrace that absurdity and we are going to figure out the good and the bad in all of it. This will be the last episode of season two. From here, I'll be taking about a month's hiatus to prepare for a, for a few very big announcements coming and as well as a, a, a slight restructuring of everything that absurdity is. So if you follow the podcast on iTunes, please leave a review. The feedback helps both uh, with visibility and with feedback for me so that I can continue to improve and make this better. I am really excited for all of the things that are coming up. I've been working hard over the last few months to make this, uh, to turn absurdity into something a bit more and to turn it into something a bit more intentional as well. I've invested some more money into this and I've tried to create something that is more than just the podcast that you're listening to, but something that can benefit you overall. And so today, for the finale of season two, there is no interview. It's just going to be you, the listener, and myself. And I want to start with this. Today, as I'm recording this, it's October 26th. And this past weekend, I went to One Project in Atlanta. And if you don't know what One Project is, and if you're an Adventist listening and you think you know what One Project is, but you've never been, then you're probably wrong. One Project is simply a movement or a gathering within Seventh-day Adventism to recapture Jesus as the center of all of our doctrine, all of our belief, and all of our, our motivations and our actions. And so it's tagline, Jesus, full stop, all full stop, is just that. And so I spent two wonderful days in Atlanta with really good friends of mine talking about Jesus, talking about what Jesus can do in my life, talking about what Jesus can do in the lives of each and every person, and different ways that we've 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 given ourselves misconceptions of who Jesus is or, or different ways of uh, that we've given ourselves misconceptions of how Jesus works or what Jesus does. And one of the speakers that was on Saturday pretty much brought the place down. So we were in a Maggiano's, which is an Italian restaurant, kind of an upscale Italian restaurant. And we're sitting at all around tables uh, and in groups of about five or six, and different speakers would come up through the day. They would speak for about 20 minutes, and then you would have another 20 minutes to respond to that by having a time of discussion at your tables. So there were questions that you could answer to kind of provoke conversation with your tables. And so you could dive into and really respond and react immediately to what was being said. And this girl, when she spoke... She talked about miracles, what they mean for us, and how we have created a wrong culture of miracles. And let me tell you, I I loved it. I resonated with it so much, and it really challenged me personally for how I view miracles, especially knowing what my life has been, especially knowing some of the things that I've been through and things that I've considered miracles. This talk really, really challenged me to take another look at those and to see what actually happened. And I don't mean that they that the things that happened to me weren't miracles, but this is going to be a talk. This is going to be a podcast episode that I think will challenge what our conceptions of miracles are. 
And so I hope this spurs some conversation on with you and, and some of your friends or, or maybe some people that you, that you interact with. So I decided to revisit several of the more popular miracles in Scripture. And I'm going to go over a few today, but I wanted to investigate these and see if there was any details that I missed. And within moments, there's a common thread throughout almost every miracle in Scripture, something very, very important, something that I had overlooked, and it jumped out at me so quickly. So on this week's episode, on this finale for season two of Absurdity, we are going to dive into just a few of these miracles and discover a different perspective on miracles and what this means for our lives. So to do that, we first need to establish what the current miracle culture is. And I want to demonstrate not only what it is, but exactly why it's so problematic. There is a kind of now famous Facebook post, and I don't know if it's fake or not. It's kind of been turned into a meme, but it is something that I actually think demonstrates this pretty perfectly. There's a woman who posts on Facebook. She says, uh, and, I, and I, I'm going to quote the status directly. She says, my sister-in-law died in a fire. Her Bible was beside her bed on a stand. Not a burn mark on the Bible. Awesome. Miracle from God. Do you, do you see the problem there? See, we talk about this loving God. We talk about this God that wants the best for us. For I know the plans you have, I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Okay, we talk about all these, these things that, that God can do for us. And then all of a sudden, the person dies in the fire, but God's word remains unscathed. Don't you think there's a inconsistency there between what God seems to prioritize? After all, there are millions, if not billions of Bibles in circulation. It's not like they can't get go get a new one, but to get a new sister-in-law, well, that's a little bit more complicated. You see, there's this culture of miracles that says that as long as I am okay, that God has provided or performed a miracle. And we say that, that all of the things that happen to us that we may not have an explanation for or that we may not be able to understand right away, well, then those things are God. And we only look at these miracles through our own lenses. Let me give you an example. People regularly get into car accidents with fatalities, no less. And they say, thank God for his protection. Well, and, 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 I, and I have to hand it to those who would criticize religion from all, all walks of life when they say, that is ridiculous. See, if God was a good God, wouldn't he just stop the car accident altogether? And that's something that I wrestle with, don't get me wrong. But, but see, even within, the, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit more of a step here and say, okay, people regularly get into car accidents and someone's died. Well, why didn't God protect the other people? Why didn't God protect the people who died in that car accident? Why do we say thank God for saving me, but we don't seem to care about anyone else involved? People will narrowly miss car accidents and say thank God for his protection, but what about all of the car accidents that happen on a regular basis? Someone finds their lost car keys and they say thank God for for helping me find my car keys. 
as if he cares more about you getting to work on time in your car to drive five minutes than he does about ending a war across the world. Same with plane crashes, national tragedies, you name it. We say, thank you, God, for protecting me, but I don't care about them. Now, look, I get the mentality behind it. I know all good and perfect things come from God. I know, I know, I know. And I've been the one to say these things several times. You know, we, we, we pray over meals. We say, thank you, God, for this food. But we don't even say thank you to the cashier. We don't say thank you to the person who prepared the food. We don't say thank you to anyone involved in it. We say, thank you, God, for healing me. But we don't say thank you to the doctors or the nurses. Now, look, I'm not saying that, that you being protected from a fire or from a car accident or from a plane act tragedy or from a national tragedy, whatever, I'm not saying that those aren't miracles, but what I want us to do is change our, 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 our perspectives on what a miracle is, what its purpose is, and what happens when they are performed. And so to do that, I want to look at three of the really, really popular miracles in Scripture. The first one is this. It is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you can open your Bible if you are listening with a Bible. You can you can check it out in Daniel three. You can read the entire story all the way through. I'm not going to be doing that. I just want to I just want to give you kind of a picture of what's going on. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you've watched Veggie Tales growing up, then you know it, him as a bumblebee. These three are ca- in captivity in Babylon. So they are. In captivity as a nation, all of Israel is in captivity, which means they are slaves, they are they are prisoners, they are they are trapped in Babylon. And when while this is going on, King Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge statue, this huge idol, and he says, Look, everyone is going to bow to this. And the significance behind it is Nebuchadnezzar is essentially shouting to the world, Hey, I am God. He's saying, look, I am the one who provides for you. I am the one who uh, lets you live, right? If you are a, a in captivity, if you're a slave or a prisoner of war, then the only reason you are alive is because Nebuchadnezzar hasn't said you should die. And so he builds this statue, says, look, whenever you hear anything, whenever you hear any official music of any sort, you will bow to this idol. You will bow to me. You will do exactly as I say. And he says this, he says, look, whoever does not bow when the music is played will be thrown into the fiery furnace. This is really significant because when you make a decree as a king, you have to follow through on it. And Nebuchadnezzar liked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these three, when the music plays, they're good Israelites, they're good Jews, they don't bow. They refuse and they are brought before the king because some people snitched on him. And so standing before the king, he says to them, look, I'm going to give you another chance, bow. And if you don't, then I will have to throw you into the fiery furnace. And and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they give what is probably my favorite faith statement in all of scripture. They say, they say this, they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, know this. We believe that our God can save us. We believe that our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, know that we will not bow to your idol. I love it, right? So they say, I, we believe that God can, we believe that God will, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow to you. We're still not going to worship something else other than our God. So Nebuchadnezzar gets angry. He has the furnace 
uh, fired up to even hotter to the point that the guards that are carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the furnace, they die when they get too close. The three are thrown in the furnace, and then instead of burning, it says that a fourth man appears in the furnace with them that has an appearance like, and depending on what translation you read, an appearance like a son of the gods or the son of God. A miracle is taking place in front of Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into this fire that burned other people to death before they got even close to it. And yet these three are walking out unscathed, and there is a fourth being in there with them. Now they come out unscathed, and Nebuchadnezzar says, Look, I see now it is your God, the God of Israel, that is supreme. And so I will worship him, and so will all of Babylon. Now here's the thing about that story. We say, man, what a miracle. What a miracle that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's lives were saved. But hold on. At the end of this miracle, at the end of this miracle, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are still captives. Their life circumstance did not change. Nothing about uh, their freedom was given. In fact, if Nebuchadnezzar hadn't changed his mind suddenly, chances are they would have just been put to death a different way. Look, see, there's this weird thing that we say miracles come and they change our lives. They they do all these things. but, But here, right as we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we say, no, he just saved them from one particular instance. But the rest of their life, the rest of their lives still sucked. Like, can we be honest about it? They still sucked. They're still in captivity in a foreign land they don't call home. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yes, saw a miracle. But I would argue that in reading this story, that miracle was not for them. I'm not saying they were just pawns in a game of, of holy chess, right? But here's the thing. If Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming himself God over all of these people, including God's chosen people then God is going to display something to him to say, no, 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 you are not God. I am. That is what this miracle, that's what almost every single miracle, vision, interpretation, everything that Daniel, that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and anyone else in the book of Daniel, uh, that's kind of the function. It's all almost in direct relation with Nebuchadnezzar to say, hey, you're not the boss. I am. See, so God's miracle in this moment is twofold, to reveal who he is as God, and to save his people. So there you go. And here's what's interesting. There are people who read this story and they say, wow, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith was so great they didn't bow. They didn't do all these things. And yet, if every other Jew in captivity bowed to that idol, God still moved, God still acted, and protected them from having to bow ever again. So even in their act of defiance, God still worked to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so that is miracle number one. And the thing to note about that miracle is twofold. Number one, that God did this miracle to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar and to protect his people. And number two, is that after God performed this miracle, God's people were still in captivity. Now I want to look at 
John 5, and this is the famous healing on the Sabbath. This is the paralytic of Bethesda. Now, if you don't understand anything about the pool of Bethesda, kind of here's here's how this one works. There was this there was this pool in Rome that was rumored. That was rumored that if you ever saw the water move, if you ever saw a splash happen or anything like that, even though no one was in it, the first person to get into that water, that to touch that water, would be healed. Now, there was a man there who had been a paralytic for 38 years. Now, he was not the only one that was around this pool. There were several. There were several, several people around this pool. And so the paralytic is there. He's waiting for his chance, but because he can't move, because he can't walk, he is always last. He's never the first person to get into the water. Now, I'd be interested to know if he'd been waiting for this for however many years. He could have been waiting by this pool for one year, for all 38 of them, for 15 years. It doesn't really matter. I'm just curious to know if it really worked because so many people would wait around it and obviously someone would get there every time. But, oh well, I don't know. We're not given that kind of information. But I do want you to notice something very interesting about the paralytic's encounter with Jesus when he comes. So check this out. I'm going to read this to you directly from Scripture. And here's what it says in John 5, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, while, while I am going or while I'm on my way, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now listen to me very carefully. There is this movement, this part of the cult, the current culture of miracles that we have that says that the greater faith you have, the more likely it is that Jesus is going to perform a miracle for you. We say, look, if only you would have more faith, if only you would pray more, if only you would do this, and if only you would do that, if only you would read your scripture more, if only you would do more community service, if only you would pray for others more, if only you would confess your sin more, if only, if only, if only. And yet right here, in the beginning of John, what we see is something completely opposite of that paradigm. Right here in John 5, we say a paralytic who never prayed, never asked Jesus to heal him. And even when Jesus said, do you want to be healed? The paralytic did not say yes. Now, his answer was yes overall, but he didn't even directly say, he didn't say, yes, I would love to be healed. He simply said, yeah, I've been trying to get into this water for so long and it hasn't worked out. That's what he says. He just says, I've been trying, but nothing's working. And Jesus heals him. The paralytic didn't have faith. The paralytic didn't say anything at all or didn't do anything at all to warrant Jesus responding to his sickness and to his ailment. Are you seeing the culture-shattering paradigm here? Jesus is healing. Jesus' ministry and Jesus' miracles are not dependent on the amount of faith that you and I have. They're not. Which means that just like in Daniel, the miracles have to have a different purpose. They are not a reward for your faith. 
They aren't. And so we need to stop this thing that says that only those who would believe in Jesus or only those who would have faith in Jesus can have a miracle performed for them. That is not what Jesus is about. What Jesus' miracle does is it reveals Jesus, period. It reveals who he is, it reveals his character, and it reveals him. But here's the interesting thing about that story, too. Knowing the pool of Bethesda and knowing what that pool was meant for and knowing that someone always beats him, it means that the paralytic was not the only one there. And yet in this story, Jesus leaves immediately after he heals the paralytic. That means that there were several other around, several others around that pool that never got a miracle. Now, you can chalk this up to Jesus being selective or choosy or whatever, but I would challenge you to say this, I, I don't know of a single person that gives money to every single beggar they see. Sometimes they give money to a beggar and then keep walking. Sometimes they just see a beggar and they decide, eh, not today. They turn this act of service into an arbitrary choice. And I'm not saying that, I mean, maybe it could be arbitrary. Maybe it could be. I really don't know what Jesus' motivations for only choosing this man were. But the one thing I take away from this story, in fact, there are two things. I'll say there are two things that I take away from this story. But number one is that it does not take faith to receive a miracle. So we need to stop telling depressed people to pray more, to have more faith. We need to stop telling mentally ill people, well, I guess depression is mental illness, but in general, mentally ill people to say, if only you would pray more, have more faith. We need to stop telling sick people, if only you would have more faith. We need to stop telling poor people, if only you would have more faith. We need to stop this behavior because it's simply not true. It's not true. And if Jesus was going to perform a miracle for them, and many time, from in, in many cases, many people have been praying for years and years and years, and God seemingly hasn't answered their prayers. It's devaluing, it's demeaning, and it's downright insulting. It just is. It's literally kicking someone when they're down. And I know I use literally wrong, but man, if, that is, if there's like a verbal equivalent to kicking someone when they're down, it's that. Number two, this paralytic paralyzed for 38 years. If he was paralyzed for 38 years, that means he did not have a job anymore. It means he wasn't getting an income. He wasn't doing much. He was basically a beggar. And Jesus heals him and then disappears. This man's life circumstances did not change. Only his ability to change his life changed. Only his ability to impact his life changed. God's miracle happened only in that one vacuum of a moment in this man's life, but it was up to that man to continue doing something with what Jesus did for him. But ultimately, this miracle happened not because of faith, but because of Jesus, period. Miracles are not always motivated by faith. Number three, the last miracle we're going to look at today is the bleeding woman of Luke 8. Now, what I find interesting about this story, the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, is that it actually is an interruption in Scripture. See, Jesus was on his way to heal someone else's daughter, and on his way there, as the crowds were all pressed up against him, the bleeding woman reached out and touched the hem of his garment, and she was healed immediately. 
Now, when we're introduced to this woman, we don't know her name, but here's what we do know. She's, she's been bleeding for 12 years. She's spent all of her money on physicians and medicine trying to find a cure, which means that now she's broke. And here's the thing you need to understand about bodily discharge so that you can kind of fully understand her, her perspective here. According to Israelite law, according to Levitical law, if you were found bleeding, if there was a bodily discharge of any sort, you were declared unclean for seven days. And from the day that you stopped, right, so if you went a full day without any sort of discharge, you still had to wait seven more days to, do, to be declared clean by a priest. And so here's this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, which means that even from the day that she is healed, she'll still have to wait seven more to be declared clean. And when you were declared unclean, you cannot be touched. You cannot touch anyone else. You can't do anything like this. You cannot be, essentially, you can't be loved. You're an outcast. No one wants to be near you because no one wants to catch what you have. No one wants to get leprosy. No one wants to start bleeding themselves. No one wants to catch some infection because they've touched someone with a bodily discharge. So this woman, 12 years, is abandoned, depressed, alone. She can't connect with her family. She's broke, can't get a job, can't hold a job, right? She is all alone and isolated for 12 years, looked at with scorn and looked at like she is the embodiment of a plague herself. And yet here's what she does. She crawls through the crowd of people that are pressing in on Jesus. And what I love about this is it means that she is breaking all of Old Testament law to get to Jesus. She is literally breaking the law by touching people because the only way to get to Jesus is to touch them, is to push them out of the way. Whether it's crawling through their legs, whatever it may be, she is pushing people to the side to touch and reach out to Jesus, which means that she is breaking the law to get to Jesus. So that's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that for all of the people in the crowd that were pressing on, in on Jesus to see a miracle, to see something happen, or maybe for him to do something nice for them, none of them receive a miracle here. Only the woman does. All of these people pressing in on Jesus, and it's only the woman who broke the law that gets the miracle. I love this. Now, he does say your faith has made you well. And so here is a here is a miracle that does happen in response to someone's faith. But this is not 100% of the time. We just showed you a story in John 5 where a miracle happened and it did not happen because of someone's faith. And yet this bleeding woman breaks Old Testament law, is declared a sinner among sinners because of it, right? Like, like no one can touch her, no one can get near her, no one, she can't touch anyone else, and yet Jesus still heals her. But here's what's important. He doesn't give her a job. He doesn't give her a job. He doesn't mend any of the relationships with her family. He doesn't do anything to make her life better other than heal her. Which means that after this day ends, she still, she still has to wait seven days to be declared clean by a rabbi or priest. She still has to find a job. She still has to get work. She still has to figure out what to do. And I guarantee you there are going to be some people that doubt anything that she said. And yet here's a woman who broke the law and she is healed. But her life circumstances remain unchanged. The common thread throughout all of these stories is that the miracle did not change life circumstances. It simply happened almost in the vacuum of a moment. 
For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stayed in captivity. For the paralytic of Bethesda, he had to rebuild his life. And he had to convince all of the priests and the rabbis, all of the Pharisees, that that he was healed on the Sabbath without getting stoned to death as a result. If anything, Jesus' healing actually put his life in further jeopardy because the Pharisees did not see healing as something that was proper on the Sabbath. And finally, the bleeding woman of Luke 8. Jesus did not give her a job. He didn't give her work. He didn't, he didn't give her money. He didn't give her anything that would be of practical use to her immediately other than that he healed her. But she would still have to wait seven days. And he walks away. Her life is better, yes, don't get me wrong, but she's still got a lot of work to do. You see, we look at miracles right now, and we say, God, I thought I had faith. God, I've been praying for years. God, I've been doing all of these things, but we forget two things. Number one, in Scripture, miracles don't happen simply because of your faith. And number two, when miracles do happen, chances are they're not going to change as much as you would expect them to. And not only are they not going to change as much as you would expect them to, you're still going to have a lot of work after it happens. You may have to find a job, right? God may bless you with a car, but you still got to work. And so there's always this question of, well, if God was loving, couldn't he do more? We say, God provided me with a car. Well, why did you lose the first one? Couldn't have God just made sure you didn't lose the first one? But this is what I need us to walk away from this understanding. This is what I need us to at least have a different perspective on, right? I know that this this podcast is about conversation. I know that I'm opening up to different perspectives, and so I'm sharing with you the one that I've taken as of late. And it's this. You are not the purpose of miracles. You and I are not the purpose of miracles. We are not the final expression of them, and our goodness or our, our, our protection, our salvation, are not the express purpose of miracles. And so this claim that God doesn't love us because God do- doesn't do X, Y, and Z for us, well, we're not the center of the universe. If anything, he would be the center of the universe. And this is what I find interesting because in John fourteen thirteen, Jesus says this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. The primary purpose of miracles is to reveal the character of God. That's it. They, it is to reveal the character of God. Now, here's what I love. Most of the miracles that God does, whether we see them today, whether we look at them throughout history, whether we look at them in Scripture itself, most of the time that God does a miracle, it has the added benefit of being for our good. So every time that God wants to reveal himself, especially through his people, It ends up being something good for his people as well. Now, that's what I love, is that God has found a way in his infinite genius to say, all right, here we go. I'm going to glorify, I'm going to reveal my character to these people. And in doing so, I'm also going to do something that benefits them. That is the true culture of miracles. It is not one dependent on how much faith we have in him. It's not dependent on how long we've been praying or how much we've been praying or the content of our prayers. It's not going to be dependent on how much you go to church. It's not going to be dependent on anything other than when God chooses to act, God chooses to act, and that's God's to decide. So miracles, I think, are some of the most misunderstood in Scripture. Because we've looked at these stories 
And we've said, I can read this in a page. God, there's no way you can't do this for me. And we forget that in that page was perhaps 20 years, 30 years worth of time that has passed, right? All of Israel sits in captivity for over 600 years in Egypt. That is 600 years. Do you understand how many people lived their entire lives waiting for God to act and he never did? They were born and they died without ever seeing God move. He didn't rescue them. Rather, he rescued their aunt, their their their. their their great, 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 great grandchildren down the line. Miracles are not about you and they're not about me. They're about God. And now the question that, that, that might come from this is, well, why does God deserve it? Well, my question to you would then be, who else does? Who else deserves this? Because God is the only one who is good or God is the only one who who would be deserving of this. You and I certainly aren't, at least not according to the rules of the universe, according to the rules of Scripture, according, according to the way that we relate to God. And man, if I just look at what I did yesterday, I know that I'm not the one deserving of that glory. And so I'm hoping that by looking at some of these stories, by looking at some of these examples, you can see some of the ways that maybe you have had or, or taken part in this improper culture this this negative culture around miracles because what this what the danger of having this culture the danger of having a culture that says that these miracles are about you that their primary function is to heal and rescue you the danger in that is a false expectation on who god is of what he will do and then when he doesn't act it damages our faith when he doesn't act we say god i thought well the problem is that you were wrong that was the problem. And that's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to kind of shift in that thinking. And, and, and if you don't know about the Father being glorified or, the, or, or, or miracles serving to reveal God, you can look up on any number of scriptures on the topic of God's glory. You can see all of the times that, that God says, look, I've rescued you for my glory. I've rescued you that I can be revealed. I've rescued you for my glory. I've saved you and I protected you and I've brought you up for my glory. God's not selfish, but there's no one else that could be glorified. And what I love is that when he seeks to glorify himself or when he seeks to reveal himself, he does it with the dual purpose of having it be something that's beneficial to you and to me. So I hope this gives you a different perspective. I hope this this kind of changes the conversation around miracles a little bit. And maybe this maybe this can help you understand the way that you've seen any sort of miracle in your own life if you've seen one. And this will wrap up season two of Absurdity. We've had some really good conversations this season, and I'm really excited about the future of Absurdity. And so please hit the subscribe button on any podcatcher app that you use. If you're on iTunes, leave us a review. And hey, look, as I'm preparing for the next slew of episodes, if you are interested in being a guest, just email me, ryan180becker at gmail.com. And we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. That's fine with me. I actually usually let the guests decide and, and we go from there. So I hope that you've enjoyed our time together and I will see you in about a month. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this journey with me. If it wasn't for each and every one of you, this would not be possible. So thank you so much. and We'll see you next time.